Hey guys, so I have been working on the Vida Tennis website, but it honestly is such a work in progress as I learn about who all is listening to this. My intention with this podcast is to create a fun community of tennis coaches where we can share ideas, knowledge, and experiences, as well as highlight people who are doing awesome things in our industry. The great thing about podcasts is you can go back and listen to old episodes, and this is all for free. So I hope this can be a good resource for you. This has been so fun for me, and like I said, I hope that you're getting something out of these conversations. Please check out the website at vitatennispodcast.com and follow Vita Tennis on social media. If you're enjoying the episode so far and want to support my mission here, please leave a kind review on the app you're tuning in from. It really means a lot. This week, I got to talk with Josh Berger about sports psychology in tennis players. We learned why Josh considers in-between point routines to be so important for all tennis players, how we can take our performance level from the practice court to the match court, why rest is so important to avoid burnout, and so much more. Get ready to learn from one of the best out there only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. I am Jennifer Gelhouse, and today I'm talking with Josh Berger. He is the founder and sports psychology coach of Tiebreaker Site, an organization that provides sports psychology services to individual athletes and teams of all sports, ages, and levels. He is the co-host of the Tennis IQ podcast, which focuses on the mental side of the game and sports performance. Josh has coached at the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport and at the Division I level at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. He was an all-conference tennis player at Clark University where he earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and he attended California State University, Long Beach, where he received his master's degree in sports psychology while researching mental toughness in college sports. Welcome, Josh, to Vita Tennis. I am excited to talk to you today about mental toughness. Thank you, Jennifer. No, I'm uh, very excited to to be here on on the podcast. Yeah, really looking forward to it. And thank you for the uh, thank you for the introduction. I don't. I feel like I don't have to uh, say too much about about my background now. I feel like that that covered a lot of it. But yeah, really excited to be on to be on the podcast with you today. Awesome. Thank you. And likewise. How so? What's the story? How did you get into the world of sports psychology? And how did the podcast come about? Yeah, so I come from a tennis background, as you mentioned. Grew up in Connecticut, played some other sports before tennis. But once I started playing tennis, it, it became clear pretty quickly to me that the mental side of the game was was pretty important. You know, I would see people around me that had great serves and forehands, backhands, but they weren't winning. And these were some people that started playing and started, you know, playing tournaments a lot earlier than me. I started playing tournaments around middle school, which was later. But I, I said, you know, why aren't some of these people winning? And it became clear that that under pressure, their level would go down. They'd make a mistake, have a really tough time putting it behind them. And it became clear that, you know, the mental side of the game was an important component for for success in, in the sport. And I never actually spoke with a sports psychology professional, but that I started reading a couple of books, like The Inner Game of Tennis, Winning Ugly. Winning Ugly was the first one, actually. And through some of those experiences, it led me into into the career and, and my interest in sports psychology. But before I, you know, really started 
working in this field, I did a lot of tennis coaching and coached at some different tennis clubs in Connecticut, Massachusetts, California, coached at the division one level for a couple of years at, at Sacred Heart University, got some college coaching experience and at the tennis hall of fame, which was, which is really cool as well. But really throughout that journey, both as a player and a coach, I noticed, you know, just continued to notice that the mental side of the game would often, often be a difference maker between players. When the, the match was on the line, it was often, you know, whoever could handle that moment better. And I, I, noticed that there wasn't always as much training, both in terms of what players were receiving at, at tennis clubs and high school and college on the mental game, but also in terms of what coaches were getting. I, I found that coaches didn't always feel equipped to to help players in that area. So yeah, so I've done some work, you know, both through USPTA in terms of working with some coaches. And I know we have some coaches listening to us to us now and on this podcast. So yeah, definitely, you know, happy to talk more about how coaches can, you know, apply some of the, some of these aspects of the mental game when they're working with players. And when did you start the podcast? How long have you been doing that? Yeah. So we started it right around three years ago. So it was July of 2020. I started it with Dr. Brian Lomax. He's, he's based in Massachusetts and the two of us actually met virtually pretty early in the pandemic. I think it was around May of 2020 on a on a webinar. And we we quickly realized we had a lot in common. We were both coaching in the same collegiate conference at the time. We both, you know, had worked in sports psychology with pre, uh, predominantly tennis players. And we set up a time to talk. And based on that talk, we, we started the podcast. So sort of one thing led to another. But yeah, it was right around three years ago. And yeah, the podcast has really been a fun, fun journey. We've, we've done over 140 episodes at this point. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's been really cool. We've put out an episode just about every week for these past three years. And a lot of the episodes are Brian and myself talking about different topics. We've also had some guests in the past. And yeah, it really is, you know, a platform where we can put out different, different ideas about the, about the mental side of tennis. Can you share any of your own personal struggles with mental toughness as a as a tennis player? Yeah. So I, I would say there there's been there was a couple main things. I think one of them was sort of a feeling of maybe inadequacy at times or feeling like I was less than. As I mentioned, I started playing tournaments a little bit later than some of the other people around me. So I think that led to yeah, maybe not having the the self-confidence that I could have in, in certain situations, especially maybe, you know, if I was beating a player that was ranked above me that, you know, I would think, oh, this isn't going to last or maybe that, you know, I shouldn't be beating this person. So I think that was a piece of it. I, I did get pretty frustrated with myself at times. And I remember relatively early on, I think I broke one, I think I broke two rackets and then mm -hmm. my parents made the decision to make me start paying for my own rackets. And that, <laughs> that stopped that, that behavior stopped pretty quickly after that. So I would say it was the frustration piece and, and the confidence piece that, that I struggled with. But yeah, as I said, you know, a lot of, I also saw a lot of the people around me who were not necessarily doing well in this, in this area of the game either. Yeah, of course. I mean, this affects us all. Obviously, tennis is a it's an individual sport, but it's also a very mental game. And we've all had our own issues on the court. I think for me, it was more about handling emotions, uh, in particular, 
like you said, frustration, anger with yourself and, you know, feeling like you can do so much better than you really are. But what are the best strategies perhaps for handling frustration and anger on the court? Yeah, I, th- I think there's th- there's a number of different directions that I think we could go with this. But one of I, I think one of the big things is to have a plan going into a match. So, you know, not expecting everything to, to go smoothly when you get out there on court, but expecting that there will be ups and downs, knowing that, that you will win points, you will lose points as well. And that's that's all part of it. You know, I think sometimes people tennis players come at things with sort of a perfectionist mentality and yes. feel like they have to they have to play perfectly in order to to win or to play well. But instead to, you know, try to go before the match even starts to have the mindset of, you know, I I need to problem solve here. I'm going to need to figure things out. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes and that's all okay. So I think having a plan going in and expecting some of those things and being realistic about those things can be a big help. And then I think there's some different tools during a match as well. Things like having a really solid routine that you can use in between points. You know, we tennis player, according to the rules, some people play a little faster than others, of course, but according to the rules, tennis players have generally 20 seconds in between points. But, you know, I think I want people to think about how is that time generally used? And especially if you've lost the last point, I find people have a tendency of, you know, focusing on that last point, getting mad about, you know, getting mad at themselves. Maybe they're upset at the opponent for something that happened, you know, a game or five games ago in terms of a line call and not really doing everything that they can to set themselves up for the next point. So I think, you know, Mm -hmm. during a match, having a solid routine that you can use in between points is really helpful. Having solid self-talk that you can use, you know, being able to use things like visualization to really have a, a plan going into the next point, almost to be able to see yourself or mentally rehearse yourself being successful in that next point. So, so I think there's a lot that can be done both before and during matches on the mental side to, to help players be successful. Yeah, that's, that's such great advice. I think especially the part where you mentioned to lower the expectations, I think that's so true for many of us. We go in thinking that we're, we have to win every point. And actually Will Bocek was just, was just, I just talked to him for the last week's episode and he mentioned a stat that is so good. It was something like Nova Djokovic or not Nova. Yeah. Nova, no, I think it was about Nova Djokovic only winning 55% of points in a match. So just having that mentality of that you're going to make mistakes and it's okay. It's just like staying positive, staying positive and, and keeping at it. And I think that that's so important to, that was, that's such an eye opener for many, but as, as a junior player, I think there's a lot of things going on too, maybe physiologically, maybe it's hormones. There's there's a lot going on where, and just immaturity too, where we just don't know how to handle those emotions, right? But so is this, are you doing this work with a lot of kids? Are you working with adults? What's the kind of the demographic that you're working with right now? Yeah, it's a mix. It's definitely a mix. I mean, I would say somewhere around 50% of the athletes that I work with are tennis players. And then I work with, you know, the other 50% are athletes of all different sports. Um, okay. And within, within tennis players, it's, you know, probably my my biggest 
group right now are teenagers and athletes that are, you know, cup leading up to teenage their teenage years. Also some college players, also some adult USTA players. That's that's also sort of a separate cohort, you know, adult men and women, adult players that you know, take their game very seriously. So it's definitely a mix. And I, I think there, there are definitely some differences when working with, you know, a 13 year old compared to a 45 year old. But I think there's also a lot of overlap in terms of, you know, having a lot of the same challenges on court, right? You, you miss an, you miss an easy overhead on, on a no ad deuce point or you double fault or you you're playing great all the way up until a tiebreaker and then you and then you lose it and i think a lot of the frustrations and challenges are are similar but yeah I, I think with 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 different types of players you know i think it's just all about trying to meet people where they're at and i think coaches can probably relate to that rather than you know saying okay this is you know, I know best and, and we're doing things my way, you know, trying to understand where somebody else is coming from and trying to meet them where they're at as much as possible. And then, you know, once we're there, then we can start to, yeah, really work on some of these things and, you know, start that process of learning different mental skills in a, in a similar way to how, how physical skills are, are learned. And you were a tennis coach yourself. So maybe you also dealt with some, I don't want to call them struggles, but maybe challenges related to mental toughness as a tennis coach because I think that's also really interesting especially for our audience I think it's really valuable to to not just be looking at our students but also what things we can change about ourselves and and maybe how our mental state may or may not affect a player definitely definitely and I think I think you're bringing up a really good point here that as coaches, we need to be aware of yeah how our how our own mental state impacts the quality of the coaching that we can do on a particular day, right? If we're if we're tired, if we have something else on our minds, yeah, it, it impacts the the quality of the coaching that, that we can deliver. And yeah, no, I, I think we you know coaches can you know really try to lead by example in this way and and again i'm not expecting anybody to be perfect here and you know definitely including myself but yeah i I think just like we teach you know just like we want to teach tennis players to be present right and we don't want them jumping ahead to the future thinking about you know okay i want to win this match and i want to beat the next person but it's like nope let's try to play point by point and also not focus on you know on what's happened in the past too much just like we fo- try to teach tennis players to be present, can coaches try to really be present? Just like we're, you know, teaching uh, our players to be prepared, you know, coaches should tr- really try to be prepared in the same way. So I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of the skills that we can work with athletes on, but also that, that coaches should try to embody as well. Was there anything when you were coaching that that you struggle with or that you saw somebody struggle with that? Uh, as a tennis coach? I would say, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say in terms of some of my coaching experience, I, I can think back to some particular examples where, yeah, where, where I was working with, you know, different levels of players, both at the club level and, and at the college level. Mm-hmm. And yeah, seeing seeing just some of the challenges that, that certain players were we're going through, for instance, like I, I could think back to a, a college match and a, a player that I was working with at the time was had won the first set, 
and was was I think losing four one in the second set. And this player had had played so well up to that point in the first set against the higher ranked player, and trying to just talk talk with them, you know, in during the changeover and say, okay, what, you know, this player was just so upset at the time, so upset with himself about how how he was playing, just couldn't believe it. And it's like, okay, can we just take a step back? Okay, what were you doing so well in the first set? Can you try to think back to that moment? What were you doing well? And try to, you know, almost get him out of his own head. And, you know, he was get him out of that frustration that he was feeling in the moment and try to help him take a step back so that he can, you know, was able to to see the bigger picture and understand, hey, I'm up a set. I might be down in the second set, but I'm still in a pretty good position in this match. I just need to remember what I was doing well that that helped get me to this point. So that's an example that I can think of with a player. I think there there's also definitely plenty of examples, you know, with me as a coach in terms of, yeah, maybe maybe other areas where I tried to to apply some of the things in my own life and, in, 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 you know, in my own coaching in terms of, you know, working with a player during practice, for instance, at the club level, like when a player is struggling with their serve, trying to, you know, maybe slow things down, help them visualize what they're trying to do, you know, help them slow things down and, and really simplify the process. So definitely, you know, I think there's different examples of trying to apply some of the, some of these sports psychology skills to, to the court in different ways. And what are your views on disciplining? So like as coaches, we're so, sometimes in situations where we might think someone's being lazy or, and maybe they are, maybe they're not trying. And our job is to push, push, push and, and, and make people better, right? Like that's kind of the main thing that we do, but it sometimes can be hard to, to really maybe relate or understand that there might be something else going on. Or that there is another way, right? Like at the way I was brought up was everything was running. Like if you did something wrong, you're running forever. And I ran a lot and therefore I was very fit. <laughs> but is that the best way? Like I feel like now the mentality is shifting and it's more about having more open conversation and and just trying to relate on a more human level you know, from that relationship from coach to player. So maybe, I don't know if you can talk about the disciplining aspect. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think there's different different methods that can be effective with different sorts of players. So as as you said, Jennifer, you know, you had to to run a lot in terms of, you know, your training growing up and that had some great consequences, some, some really positive consequences in terms of, you know, it made you fitter, it made you faster, had a lot of, you know, positive, positive consequences. But, you know, I think there's also examples of sometimes, you know, discipline over disciplining can, can go too far and it can cause players to maybe lose some of their passion with the sport, maybe burn out, maybe quit. So I, I think there is a movement to, you know, not to work less hard, not, but to try to make sure that we're, you know, in some ways working smarter not necessarily just harder, harder too, but working smarter and making sure that we're, you know, being smart with our training process. And I think, you know, rather than it just being, okay, I want to, you know, hit 500 forehands in a row, it's like, okay, can I think about how I can use this shot in different situations? Okay. Can I work on really stepping into the court and 
being aggressive with with forehands? Can I work on my you know lateral movement? Can I work on hitting the ball off my back foot if somebody hits the ball you know and pretty much the ball pretty much lands at the baseline or right in front of the baseline and I'm on my back foot? Can I work on you know that defensive shot? So I, I think there's you know been more of a change of you know can we can we bring the practice time and you know rather than it being too repetitive or, or feeling too much like just do more, just do more, just do more, really think about, you know, are we doing everything that we can? So I use the forehand as an example, but I think there's more of a push now with sports psychology, certainly. I think there's, you know, players are thinking more about, um, you know, the strength and conditioning piece, but also the injury prevention piece. I think sometimes when players are just taught to do more and more and more, it can really take a toll on their body especially, you know, especially young athletes. So yeah, I think, you know, trying to make sure that people are approaching tennis in all of the different angles of the sport, the the mental piece, the technical piece, the strategic tactical piece, you know, the, the strength and conditioning, the flexibility piece, all of the different pieces and understanding that that all helps to make a, a tennis player. You know, I think one other thing is, you know, I think now a lot of the research is coming out that there are benefits to playing multiple sports, to playing multiple sports as a kid, where I think in the past it's been about, you know, players specializing really early and choosing tennis at, you know, age six, seven, eight, and that being their only sport. And I think now uh, a lot of the research, a lot of the the guidelines from you know, USTA in different places are showing to to wait a little bit longer, maybe somewhere around age 12, 13, something like that before that specialization takes place because players can really learn a lot from from other sports as well, both both physically and mentally. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, that's kind of the way I grew up and the way I still see it at, at a lot of academies and at high levels, like high performance places, universities, college teams, is that mentality of more and more and more and more and more. And more and more and more kids are getting burned out and quitting too. And there's no consideration for the importance of rest and not just physically, but also mentally. And I see it where I see it really badly, to be honest with you, is in college. And you also coach college. I've seen college teams. I was a college coach myself. And I was very, I, I always try to be very mindful of that because I I saw, you know, at different levels, not just D1, but, you know, I coached at a community college for a little bit as well. And even at that level, it's like you just see teams where the kids are going to school right? That's like the main reason why they're there. And they're also doing an hour private, an hour of fitness, a three hour practice, and then they have to study. And then it's like, it's a lot. It's like, do you really need all that every single day when you've grown up playing? Like you got to trust your abilities a little bit uh, and maybe work more on like the team side. And I don't know, I'm just speaking from my, like my personal experience with college tennis is just yeah it's just about more and more and more and that's where like kids get so many injuries too and even like now like you you see you know a 12 year old having needing surgery for their knee or their wrist and like that is so young <laughs> I mean that's telling you something right there definitely no I, I agree and I think 
yeah, we're seeing more of those injuries taking place earlier. And yeah, as you said, I think in college there's, yeah, it often is about more and more and, you know, players, you know, student college students who, who are student athletes have so much on their plates, yeah. right? I mean, they have their, university students first of all the vast 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 majority of them are not going to be professional athletes they're going to be doing something else with their careers so they have their their schoolwork they have their social life and they have their sport and within their sport as you said there's you know long practices there's strength and conditioning there might be you know the the mental piece there's often a lot of travel like particularly you mm-hmm. know at at the division 1 level i know that there's you know often significant travel. I, I played at the division three level where there was, you know, still some, still some travel, still some strength and conditioning, but the, the time demands were, were certainly less than, you know, something like the division one level, but yeah, it, it really is quite a bit. And I, I agree with you. I think there, there are ways to, to do less, to, to do more with less and to, to try to work, you know, smarter here rather than it always needing to be more and more and more. Because I think, again, you know, in that case, people burn out less, people get, you know, fewer injuries. And yeah, I, I think there's ways to help players sort of get out of their own head so that they can trust their abilities more. Because as you said, by the time somebody gets to that level, you know, people aren't playing college tennis unless they've been playing for years. So, you know, can once they get to that point, can they trust their abilities? Can they, you know, do what they know how to do and find ways to, to quiet some of the, some of the things getting in, getting in their way, whether that's on the technical side, whether that's on the mental side, but find ways to, you know, sort of get out of, get out of their own way so that they can play and, you know, showcase the skills that they, that they have. Yeah. So how important is rest? (laughs) I think rest is, is critical. Rest is critical. Rest should be built in into a schedule and yeah, it's not, it it often isn't the case. I mean, I I know with, with collegiate sports, there is, you know, a a mandated day off generally, but, but yeah, I I mean, I think for, for players of all types, all coaches work, have all the workarounds to get around the NCAA rules. I guess not even like, come on, (laughs) all those rules are broken. (laughs) That's no, it's absolutely true. Or worked around. I shouldn't say broken, but worked around. Definitely. No, no, and it's true. And and the reason why is because coaches are thinking about, you know, college coaches are thinking about their own jobs. Right. And, and and they, you know, it's competitive with, with, yeah, they're, they're thinking about their own conference where other coaches are doing the same and there's, you know, there's workarounds and no, it's tough. And I think, there's similarities there between what, you know, college players experience and what, you know, other sorts of elite players, whether it's junior, whether it's professional players experience where they're almost afraid to rest or to take time off because they feel like they're falling behind. They feel like, okay, if I'm not training today and this other person who's a similar UTR is training for three or four hours, then I'm falling behind. And I, I see the same thing with injuries. You know, I, work with a lot of players that are coming back from injuries and really try to work on the the mental piece of that. But yeah, when, when players come back from injuries, there's often this rush to come back as soon as possible. And yeah. that, you know, as, as you know, as you know, can lead to, to a lot more injuries can lead to things getting worse. 
rather than, you know, giving your body that time to heal. So I think whether it's rest, whether it's injury recovery, I think it's, it, you know, it, it's key to give yourself more time and to build that into your schedule rather than say, you know, rather than saying, okay, this is our tennis schedule. And then you can build and rest around that. If you have, you know, if you're able to prioritize rest, then that goes in the schedule first, and then you can work some of the other things around that. Yeah. Now, speaking of college, it's funny because sometimes when I would give my players time for rest, a lot of times that translated into time for partying. <laughs> right. So that's when you go, oh my gosh, I'm trying to help you. <laughs> and yeah, that. so anyway, that's just kind of a funny side note, but hey, at least you're giving them the chance to to rest and you're doing your part <laughs> to to look after the player, you know? No, it's true. I mean, I, mean, I, I think, yeah, we, we have to be, we talked about realistic, you know, it, that, that I think is, is reality that, that a lot of players are going to, to make those choices, but I think it, yeah, it is critical that they, that they don't, you know, th that they feel like they, they do have time in their schedules for other things, right. That they, they do have time to rest, that they do have time, to have a social life, you know, hopefully they're making choices that are not going to detrimentally impact their performance and they're going out partying and then they have practice or a match the next day. But, but yeah, I, I think it is important, you know, that a player has a well-balanced life between their academics, which sometimes are sacrificed when there's too much on their plate in terms, you know, on the, on the athletic side, on the, on the social life, you know, on, on their sport life. So I think it's important that they have a balance between some of these different pieces. And I think rest is, is critical to maintaining some of that balance. Absolutely. And what about players that struggle? And I think maybe we've all been there either as a player or as a coach, we've seen it so many times where a player can do something in practice or they're practicing really well, but then they go and enter a tournament and they just completely fall apart is there anything any advice that you have for for those players anything that they can do to start seeing those changes i think it's a great question i would say that's actually one of the main reasons people will reach out to me or someone that does the work that i do i think there's a couple different things that that can be focused on i mean i think one of the biggest differences between uh, practice and, and matches is is the pressure, pressure and consequences, right? During practice, people generally aren't afraid to miss. They they understand that that's a part of improving on a shot, a part of playing the sport, and there's generally not consequences for winning and losing points in the same way. But all of a sudden, you're in a match and you're thinking about the score and you're thinking about what's going to happen if I win, what's going to happen if I lose and how's this going to impact my UTR rating. And if I'm on a, you know, men's or, or ladies USTA team, how's, you know, what are other people on my team going to think? And I think all these questions pop up because of that pressure and because of, you know, of, of the additional consequences. So, you know, I try to help players find ways to take pressure off themselves that, you know, generally there's enough pressure. And, you know, I, I think that it is sometimes it's about sort of finding that, that balance for each player in terms of how much pressure they want to 
be experiencing. But generally, there's you know plenty of pressure as it is. There's you know ranking points on the line. There's you know UTR on the line. If it's a junior player, you know there's might be pressure from their parents or their coach. Adult players have you know pressures in terms of maybe a a league team and you know things like a UTR and world tennis number things like that. So you know I think there's definitely ways to take some of that pressure off. You know one concept that I try to talk to to athletes about generally the first time I meet with them or certainly very early on is this idea of controlling the controllables and you know can you really determine what is out of your control as a tennis player and there's there's a lot of things out of our control right the the weather for instance is is often a good place to start can't control that can't control the court court speed court quality is there a crack in the court can't control the opponent how's the opponent's level is the opponent playing really well not so well is the opponent playing a playing style that you don't like. Maybe they're a counterpuncher or a pusher. Maybe they're making some line calls you disagree with. So there's a lot of things out of our control. But also, can we really determine what's in our control, right? Our effort, our attitude, our decision-making, how we prepare, you know, our nutrition, our hydration. So once I think, I, I like to bring up this idea to players because I, I find it can take a lot of pressure off them. And I find, you know, going back to your question about the difference between matches and practice, I think players put all this extra pressure on themselves during matches. Okay, I need to win. I should win. I'm supposed to. And I think using something like this idea of controlling the controllables can take some pressure off, even if it's just asking yourself that question of, is this in my control or not? And if it's not in my control, can I try to shift my focus towards something that's in my control, like my effort, my attitude, my self-talk, something like that? Yeah. And is this mostly through like, how do you work? Is this like through a talk session, a talk therapy? Is it like you said earlier, like maybe having a plan, having different strategies? Like how does that all come about? Yeah. So in in terms of sort of the logistics, I mean, I work virtually with athletes. So, you know, it's generally through Zoom and it's, it's a mix of things, you know, talking about recent matches that they've had. Generally, you know, I'll start start sessions by checking in about any recent matches, you know, talking to them about what went well, what didn't go so well, you know, how are they utilizing or applying some of the things that we're talking about in sessions. And then generally, you know, we'll we'll dive in to to one or two skills. And that could be self-talk, that could be routines, that could be goal setting, visualization, that mm-hmm. could be how they prepare for matches, how they, you know, their, their post-match routine. It could be a number of different things. And then if they have something coming up, like a tournament, you know, can we really come up with a game plan for that? Can we think about, you know, big picture, what are certain things that they want to achieve out there? You know, can we set up certain process goals that they want to really make sure that they're uh, solid on? You know, process goal might include, you know, I want to take time in between points, slow things down and use my routine. Or I want to go into the match feeling like I had a great warm-up, physically and mentally. Or I want to really be aware of my opponent's strengths and weaknesses and make sure that I'm, you know, making them hit more shots on their weaker side and trying to sabotage their game plan as much as possible. So, yeah, to answer your question, it's a mix of, you know, checking in about past results, starting to think ahead about, you know, future tournaments or league matches that are going on and also, you know, really trying to build 
build some of these mental skills that I mentioned. And do you have a favorite one, one that you see the most impact with? Maybe visualization, maybe, I don't know if you include mindfulness, meditation, or routines like you were saying. Do you have like one that you're like super passionate about? It's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I It's like having to choose between my kids or something. I think there's, I think there's benefits to, to all of them, honestly. So I, I think it is tough to choose. I think you know, meditation has definitely has a place. And now I think we're seeing so many professional athletes talk, speaking out about how they utilize that, you know, players like Novak Djokovic, Bianca Andreescu, Iga Sviantek, LeBron James, I know is one of his big sponsors is Calm, one of the meditation apps. So I think there's so many athletes that are now, you know, that, that find benefit in something like meditation or speaking, you know, speaking out about it. I, I think routines, especially for tennis players, is is really key because tennis is a sport of of instant feedback. And, and you know, after every single point, you've either won it or you've lost it, right? And it's very easy as a tennis player to ride this emotional roller coaster of okay, I played a great point and I won it, and I'm awesome, I'm a winner, and then I lost the next point. Okay, now I'm a loser. Now, you know, my game is horrible. My backhand is horrible. How did you miss that backhand into the net? And then I hit a nice serve and it's unreturned and okay, things are good again. And I, and then I lose the next point and it's very easy to go up and down and up and down and ride that sort of emotional roller coaster. So I think having a process, having a system of, of some sort of routine that you can use in between points is, is really helpful. So I guess if I had to pick one, I might, I might pick that one, but I think there's, there's a number of different things. You mentioned visualization as well. And, you know, which is really a way for, players to mentally rehearse what they want to happen off the court, something you could do before a match, something you can do at home, something you could do on the court before a point. So I think there's a number of different skills, but if I had to choose, I guess I'd pick in-between point routine. In-between point routines. What are some of the routines? Can you can you go into maybe just one example? I mean, I know you see players, you know, tugging at their the strings on their racket or like Sharpova, she had her own routine, right? Where she like walked back to the back wall, came back, like they all have these unique little things, but in between points, that's so specific. So is the point to just kind of reset mentally and and not think about anything? Like what what is it? Yeah, so I generally use a framework called the 16-second cure which is from Dr. Jim Lear, which I'm sure some people are familiar with. He, he's been based down in, I think he's still based down in Florida and he's worked with, you know, tennis players of different levels, including a lot of top professional players for, for decades. And he established this thing called the 16 second cure, which is essentially a, a system to move on from one point to the other. And it, mm. to answer your question, it, I would say it starts with acknowledging that last point. You know, mentally, let's just notice what happened in that last point, but try to do it objectively. Try to do it almost as if you're an outsider, right? Without all the emotion attached to it. Not, you know, I missed that backhand because my backhand's horrible, but no, what what actually happened? Okay, maybe I was too close to the ball. Maybe my feet weren't set. Maybe my racket wasn't back in the time. Maybe I went for the wrong shot. So it starts with sort of that recognition of that last point paired with some good body language and then we're trying to reset. Then we're trying to use our breath to, to help ourselves reset. And then we're starting to think about the next point, starting to really focus on how we prepare for the next point and really coming up with a game plan for that, you know, generally focusing 
on the first two shots, you know, a serve and a serve plus one or return and a return plus one can be helpful. And then we go into our ritual. So sort of through those four steps of first, you know, making sure we have a positive response from that last point, then we're resetting using our breath, then going into that, you know, starting to think about the next point, preparing for it, having a clear plan, maybe visualizing it, and then going into that ritual of bouncing the ball or split stepping or whatever that looks like. So that's sort of a foundation. But as you said, you know, players can really make that their own. Maybe they add something in that they like to do. They like to go to the towel. There's a certain mantra they like to use. Mm. Uh, Maybe they take something out if it doesn't necessarily work as well with them. And I sort of went through it quickly. There's definitely more on on each of those steps. But, But I think it can be a nice foundation that players can use to help themselves put whatever point just happened behind them, whether that's positive or negative, have a way to, you know, find some calmness, some relaxation, and then start to really think about the next point, really have a plan for it. And generally, if we can get to that step of focusing on the next point and really having a clear plan for it, what we're not focusing on anymore is whatever just happened. We're not going to be still thinking about that last point or that line call or opponent made against us. We're going to be focusing on what we do next. And so it's more like, a, almost like a protocol, having a protocol that you follow each time. But what if you're just so angry that you can't, like, how do you get rid of that? Is there like, you, you mentioned breath. So I'm like, that really piqued my interest. You said breath. I think breath could be a way to get there, but is there anything that a player can do to maybe quickly snap out of it? I think the breath is a great, great way to do it. I think the breath, you know, it's part of that routine, but I think, yeah, as you said, when a player is really angry, they might not really think about going through all the steps. They're going to be like, screw the protocol. I'm angry. (laughs) Screw this. Yeah. I'm ready ready to break my racket. Um, Yeah. So no, I think the breath is really helpful. I think, you know, breathing in through the nose, making sure we're slowly breathing out through our mouth. There's something called box breathing players Mm -hmm. can use where they're slowly breathing in for four seconds, holding it for four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, holding for four seconds and continuing that, that tends to help players reset. A lot of players will use like a specific self-talk phrase, you know, so maybe it's, you know, one point at a time, or maybe it's, you know, put it behind you. Something that, you know, some players use is something called W-I-N, which obviously spells win, but it, it stands for what's important now. And we had Jorge Capistani, the coach on, on our podcast, on one of our first episodes, actually, and he was talking about this idea. And I think that this resonates with a lot of players, too, because they're able to, you know, if they, if they can ask themselves what's important now, it's generally not the last point because that's that's out of our control. That's over. And it's generally not you know, am I going to win or am I going to lose this match? It generally is now. What's important now is is right now. What's important now is that I'm ready for this next point. And, you know, I think we can think of the next point as the most important point because that's the only one we have any sort of control over. I love that. I never heard of of that win, (laughs) but I love that. What's important now? It, it, It brings you back in into being present and, and letting go. And I love the box breathing. I, you know, I never did that when I played 
I just started doing that like maybe a few years ago when I started doing yoga and stuff and started incorporating it into tennis matches that I would play. And I love it because it's something that I can do physically to get me out of being nervous or angry or frustrated. It gives me something to focus on and, and something that I can physically do with my body, not necessarily with my mind, you know? So I love that. I think that's, I think that people, I think everybody should be doing that. (laughs) It sounds really simple, but it's really not. (laughs) And people can practice it. You know, I think with, with a lot of these mental skills or, really with all mental skills, you know, they, they take practice just like a, yeah. a physical skill takes practice. So, you know, you, as, even as, as you're listening to us right now, you know, try it. It's four, 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 and four, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you, you know, feel free to try it and see, see how you feel afterwards and then try it during practice and then try it, you know, during a match. And, uh, you know, I think almost thinking of it as a progression in that way of, you know, using it step-by-step step, using it, you know, in a really relaxed, easy environment and then using it in practice where there's a little more pressure, a little more stress, and then being able to use it in a match. I think it, by the time you're using it in that final stage in a match, you're a lot more ready and prepared to be using it rather than trying to pull out, you know, box breathing or some other skill for the first time in a match with when there's more, more pressure and more on the line. Yeah. And I think it also helps with focus which is kind of what I wanted to ask you too, is, is there anything that coaches can do to maybe be more aware of different types of students that might, you know, maybe kids that struggle with focus, they might have ADHD or even kids, which you don't usually hear about in athletes, but kids go through depression or other mental health conditions what can we do as coaches to be, I don't know, more well educated about it, I guess, and any like signs that we need to look for or any kind of advice that you can share when it comes to, I know they're very different things, but take it, you know, into whatever direction you would like. <laughs> yeah. And I think I want to be, you know, I, I always try to be clear, you know, w- when working with players and with talking to, you know, parents of of junior players just in terms of what I what I work with players on and what I don't. And I, I really focus on the performance side, not on the, you know, mental health side of things. But there's, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, definitely warning signs. There's definitely, you know, there's a, a mental health first aid course that's being offered now that coaches could look into, parents could look into to, you know, start to be able to spot certain warning signs. So I would, you know, encourage people to look into that, which I think is a great resource for whether it's, you know, being able to help somebody who's close to you or somebody else that that you interact with. So I think, you know, something like that could be really helpful. But I think what, what I would say, I guess the direction I would take it is that if we, if we think about right now, 2023, and maybe we compare this to, you know, five, 10 years ago, but definitely 20, 30 years ago, there's just been such a shift in terms of how people think about mental health. And I think, you know, the the fact that so many elite athletes have spoken out about their own mental health challenges has been one of the main factors that has led to that. You know, athletes like Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, the 
Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan from the NBA. There's, you know, there, there's really a long list. And yeah, being able to, the fact that these, you know, elite athletes, some of the best athletes in the world have spoken out about their struggles has really shown, I think, you know, everybody else, junior athletes, you know, adult uh, club level players that, you know, it's okay. It's, this doesn't have to be something that's hidden. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, we try to just forget about, but you can, you know, really try to address these things. And by addressing these things, you can really make positive changes in your life. So I think, again, definitely not an expert on the mental health side of things, but I, I it's definitely, you know, a connected piece. And I, I would, you know, encourage people to, to learn more about it in terms of being able to, to help others that, that are near them. And also, yeah, definitely, you know, I admire those that have been open about their own mental health challenges, because I I think it really has paved the way for some of the societal improvements that have taken place in recent years in this area. Yeah, absolutely. And as coaches, you know, we, a lot of times we spend, especially if you're working with kids, we spend so much time with them. A lot of times we spend, you know, like all the, all the afternoon with them. <laughs> so we get to interact, we get to really see how they're behaving. And I think it's really important to have open communication with parents. And if there's any issues, if the kid's misbehaving, like not just like sweep it under the rug, you know, but like actually show a concern. I think it's really important. But yeah, I mean, we're not doctors. We don't, we don't, we can't like go and say, Hey, your kid has ADHD or your kid has this and that, you know, but if they're misbehaving, I think the parent needs to know, <laughs> I guess that's as far as we can, that's as far as we can go. <laughs> Def- definitely. And I think having, you know, having, having everybody on the same page is a, is a good rule of thumb, you know, having the coach and the parent and the athlete on the same page, I think, can help to get ahead of certain things, you know, you're by, by doing that, you know, I I think it's, it's beneficial in terms of the performance side, because, you know, everyone can be clear and on the same page about goals, about strength, you know, what's going really well with someone's game, what's not going so well with someone's game. And I think there's a lot more, but yeah, on, on the mental health side, I think there's, there's definitely, you know, areas that that can be beneficial and, you know, maybe you can, you know, get ahead of something rather than having to, you know, address something after the fact, after something has come up. And I think just in general, it's, it's beneficial for everybody to, yeah, to be on the same page, to be open for that, for that open dialogue to exist. And what do you think is the most exciting thing you see going on in, in your world of sports psychology, any, anything new coming out, anything, I don't know, any new practices that you're like, this is going to be great. There's some different things. I mean, I think the, I think there's, you know, in recent years at the professional level, there's a lot of athletes as we talked about how, or I mentioned how athletes have spoken out about mental health, but also a lot of athletes have spoken out about mental performance or sports psychology or using, you know, sports psychology to try to help their performance. You know, I, I think about, Iga Swiatek is a great example who's been number one in the world on the women's side for a while now, and she 
has a sports psychology professional that travels with her and goes, oh. I think, to all the tournaments with her. Um, a lot of players now will have somebody either in their box at a tournament or, you know, at home, but supporting them throughout the tournament. Alcaraz has talked about using a sports psychology professional, I think, since 2020. So for oh, the wow. past few years. Yeah, if he was, you know, what, 17 at the time, something like that, and already quite, quite, quite good. But yeah, I, I think one of the exciting things has just been that that there's more openness about that and more, you know, people are understanding that that's a really critical aspect of performance. I, I think one other exciting thing is neurofeedback. There's a lot of different neurofeedback sorts of devices that are out there now. So you brought up meditation earlier, which I think is, again, a really important tool that people can use. And But what's interesting about something like meditation is generally somebody meditates and they have their own experience as to how it went. Did that go really well? Was I calm? Was I relaxed? Was I focused? Was I, you know, did I embody some of those traits that I, that I wanted to bring out? Or was I distracted? Did I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind? Did I, you know, did I not, did things not go so well? So there are certain, you know, now there's certain technology that can help people actually bring data to see what they're, what's going through their minds, both in terms of while they're meditating, but also while they're doing other things. I've, you, on our podcast, we had the president of FocusCom, which is a device that I've used and I know a lot of athletes have used, which is a, a little headset. It's like a little headset that just goes right sort of from the forehead to the ears and it connects to your phone and you can sort of see moment by moment a score, zero to a hundred as to how, again, it's called focus calm. So that's their, their focus calm score, you know, a hundred being that you're really in that sort of focused and calm state, zero or something closer to that being that your mind is really restless, but it changes, you know, moment by moment by moment where you can be at a 85 or 90 and then your phone rings and then it, it drops down very quickly. And then it takes you a little time to, to get back to that level. So I think, yeah, one of the exciting things is being able to, you know, bring technology and data to, to what we're doing to, to support it and to, to continue to give athletes some, some other tools that they can use. That's so cool. And do you use that while you're meditating or like, when do you use it? So through the app, there there are some meditations. I've done some of those. I've done some some other meditations that I've liked as well. And essentially, you just put the headset on, you turn it on, connect it to your phone, and then you start the meditation. And as you do, it just, you know, you can just see your score. And again, I've it's, it's interesting because I've found that when I start to really look at the score, that actually sometimes gets in my head. Sometimes it's more helpful to close my eyes throughout it. And then I can sort of look at it. It's like a graph where you see what level you were at throughout the 10 minutes oh, or however long. But yeah, so, th- so it, yeah, you, you can either see it in the moment, sort of where your score is at or after the fact, but it's nice having that, that feedback. I think sure. you know, that that's something that's, that's, often missing i don't think i could wear it though i think i would be the whole time thinking what's my score am i there what's my score <laughs> definitely so I, I don't know that i could do that but i love <laughs> meditation i actually i'm super into meditation now even more so than yoga yoga kind of was the entryway to it and I'm, I'm obsessed with it do you have any any apps for tennis players uh, for meditation that you recommend 
There, not an app per se. I mean, I think there there are some great apps out there. There's there's Headspace. There's Calm. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. There there's one called Waking Up, which is through Sam Harris, which uh, I've used as well. Which is nice about that is there's sort of like a I think it's like a 30 day course. So it's like it starts pretty basic. It starts to get more advanced, more philosophical actually, which is which is interesting. Maybe not for everybody. I there's a a, a great 10 minute meditation that's on YouTube. I'd be happy to, you know, send that to you, Jennifer, but it's essentially you can search, you know, meditation for sports and it'll pop up. It's about, I think, 10 minutes and 30, 30 or so seconds. And it's really nice. It has sort of relaxing music going on. It's, it's geared towards athletes specifically, which is nice rather than it being more general. And I think it's a, you know, it, it helps athletes notice their breath, notice thoughts that come in, notice sounds, you know, and I think it, it trains you to, be aware of what's happening in the moment. And if we can notice what's happening within us and around us in the moment, then we can hopefully notice when we're not being present too. We can notice when we're in the past, focusing on something that's happened or in the future. And then I think meditation also gives us the tool of the breath to sort of use it as an anchor. And we can use that anchor to come back to the breath. We're okay, I'm present. And then I started thinking about the future. What am I going to have for dinner? Or what happens if I lose this match? And then, nope, I'm using my breath to come back to the present and trying to stay in the present. And then inevitably I get distracted again, but I have that tool of the breath to try to, you know, come back to the present. And it's, it's a process takes time. Some days it's easier than others as, as I've experienced, as I think maybe you've experienced the same Jennifer. I don't, I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, I think I'll I'll share with you before I let you go, I'll share with you really quickly and with the audience, my favorite meditation apps, because I really like this stuff. There's one called Tapping Solutions. It's a tapping meditation. So it's different. It's a different type of meditation. There's so many different types of meditation. But this is like where you tap on different points in your body as you're meditating. I really like that. And there's this one called, this one's a little more out there, but I love it. I almost do it daily. It's called a six-phase meditation. I don't know if you've heard of that. Is this guy, he takes you through through six phases. And basically you start with just feeling love, then gratitude, forgiveness. Then you do like a little visualization of what like your day is going to be. And then at the end, it's a little bit like asking for a blessing. It's something like that. So, but it's a 20 minute meditation and I love it. It's probably my favorite meditation, but there's so many and it's so personal, right? To to every single person. So whatever works for you, you do you, (laughs) you know, but those are my favorite. (laughs) That's awesome. And I I think I'll have to check out that six phase meditation. Sounds sounds really interesting. And I think, you know, I think the one thing I would encourage people to do is to, to try different things, see what works for you. As, as Jennifer said, there's, there's plenty of different apps out there, plenty of, you know, videos and resources. Sometimes I've, you know, talked to people and they're like, Oh yeah, I tried that once. And I didn't like, it wasn't for me. I didn't like it or it was really mm-hmm. tough. And it's like, okay, well, can you try I it again? <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes I think it's a matter of, you know, starting slow. You know, can you try to just sit and focus on your breathing? You know, I think one, one thing I sometimes tell people to do is to close their eyes and try to count to 10 without getting distracted, without getting distracted by a thought, without, you know, tr- try to count count your breaths to 10. Try to count 10 breaths without getting distracted and thinking of something else as you're doing it. And it's really hard. 
And so I, I think there's different ways that you can use something like meditation to to train your brain, but you have to figure out what what works best for you and it can take some time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll spread the word out more and more about sports psychology, of course, and mindfulness, meditation, all that great stuff. Thank you so much, Josh, for talking with me today. I know we've been talking for a while, so I'll let you go. But thank you so much. And it was so great to reconnect with you. Absolutely. Yeah, great to to reconnect with you as well. And this was this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Vita Tennis. If you want to learn more about Josh and his podcast, please check out the links in the show notes. If you enjoy this type of content, please share our reels on social media or leave us a review on the podcast app that you're using. It will help me reach more tennis people who may be interested in this type of content. It really does mean a lot. Thanks for listening and until next time.